So if you've been following along with our series by now, you may have noticed that James tends to like contrasting ideas, right? He has a bit of a habit of kind of contrasting two different things, right? bit of a different style in, in his writing than, than, say, Paul had. James likes to give you kind of the contrast, both sides of the coin. And again, I think that's why he resonates so well with many Christians. It's certainly why he resonates so well with me. Um, so this morning in chapter 3, James wants to talk to us about wisdom. Starts with the question, right? Who is wise and understanding among you? It's a bit of a rhetorical question. Um, James is right into a general audience, so he doesn't, he's, he's not going to list off a whole names of wise people and the churches who are reading the letter. Uh, but James is now, he's going to explain what a wise person looks like. He's going to contrast what the opposite of a wise person is. He's going to contrast the wise with the foolish. So who, has, who is this wise and understanding person? What, what does he look like? What does he do? Still in verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's who a wise person is. Someone who shows their works in the meekness of wisdom. Notice what James is doing here. Notice what he is setting up. Goes hand in hand with what we talked about last week and and two weeks ago. One thing James likes to do is that he likes to build on ideas. So what he's doing here, he's building on this idea of faith and works being intermingled, intertwined with each other from three weeks ago, and now the, the, the taming of the tongue from last week, says that good, by his good conduct, let the wise person show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So here's what most people, even most people in the first century, thought about wisdom. Wisdom was purely a mental thing. It was an academic thing. Right? It was for philosophers and thinkers. Right? Wisdom was for the sages. It was a brain thing. What James is saying here is this. Now, if you want to be wise, act like it. Wisdom is lived out in your actions, much like your faith is lived out in your deeds. See that connection? Faith and wisdom are linked. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So James is going to contrast two kinds of people from here on out. He starts with the, with the words of the foolish, and he'll contrast them with the words of the wise. So as with just about everything that we ought to do, James begins by talking about the heart. Begins by talking about our motivation. James says, if bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition is in your heart, then don't boast. Right? Because you're boasting, in your boasting you're being false to the truth. You're not being meek, you're not being wise. Your bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition only serves to glorify yourself and doesn't serve to glorify God. That's not wisdom. The things you're saying appear, even, I mean, even if the things you're saying appear to be wise to your audience, if it comes from a heart of bitterness and jealousy, it's not wisdom. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That brings up a really important question. Where does your wisdom come from? Does it come from the world around you or does it come from God? Because here's what James's point is. Any wisdom that does not come from above, does not come from God, is demonic in nature. That's not a, like, we're not comfortable with that idea. Right? I was just having this, this conversation um, last night with, with Cody. We were talking about um, 
different world religions and how we interact with them and what we do as Christians and how we live in the world, you know, with people who are of different religions. And, and any religion that doesn't worship Jesus Christ as Lord, does not worship the God of the Bible, comes from the demonic. It just does. Now, you might be thinking, but, but they don't agree. Right? Buddhists don't agree with Muslims. Muslims don't, don't, don't agree with Taoists. Da- I mean, all these other religions, they don't agree either. So how can they come from the same source? Well, because the enemy is out to confuse us. He doesn't care if what he's teaching isn't true. It doesn't agree with itself. He's out to confuse us and get us away from the God of the Bible. His concern isn't about being isn't about his false theology being united. He's just out, out to confuse us. So any wisdom that doesn't come from God is demonic in nature. It just is. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This is where James goes from your motivation to your actions. Okay? He says, if there's jealousy and ambition in your heart, your actions will show those things. Disorder, every vile practice. Those are the... Those are the outpourings of an ambitious, bitter heart. That's why I always say this. I don't care what you do. I don't. That's a symptom. If what you do is a vile practice, that's not the problem. The problem is your heart. The vile practice, the sin that you're committing, is a symptom of a heart problem. So I don't care what you do. I care why you do it. Because here's, here's the reality. If your heart is in a worshipful place, if your heart is tuned to the Lord, if your heart is worshiping God, then the things you do will be worshipful as well. You just got to check your heart. If your motivation is in another place, jealousy, ambition, pride, anything, your actions will match your motivation. So always be checking your heart. Don't worry, about, don't worry about your actions. Don't worry about what you do. Check your heart. Check where your actions come from. Check your motivation. Verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's where your heart ought to be. Right? Your heart ought to be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Full of mercy. Full of good fruit. Impartial, sincere. Remember that James is making the case here that wisdom is not just something for the sages. Not just something for the intellectuals. Not just something for guys that spend their time in ivory towers. Wisdom is something for everyone. It's something we do. That's why he's talking about wisdom leading to good fruit. Not writings and thoughts and books. It's feet on the ground and hands at work. That's what wisdom is. Okay. So this morning has been a lot of theory so far. Right? So what's, what's the practical outworking? How do we do this? Other than making sure our heart's in the right place. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we take these principles from James and apply them to our lives? I've got four examples for you. 
this morning, and I kind of hope to make the distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom a little more, more clear in how we live them out. So the first one is this, probably pretty timely for our church, right? Church growth, <laughs> timely for us. What's the wise way to do church growth? Okay, so first let's, let's look at the motivations that James starts us off with. As always, it starts with your heart. So you want to grow the church, first thing you do, look at your heart. Why are you doing it? Why do you want to grow the church? Are you doing it out of jealousy or ambition? Hold on, how, do you, how can you grow a church out of jealousy or ambition? I'll tell you this, pastors all over the world struggle with this. We struggle with hearing how well other pastors are doing. Hearing how well their ministries are doing. How fruitful they're being. Especially if our ministries aren't doing that well. So if you're not seeing a lot of fruit. And a friend of yours is seeing a tremendous amount of fruit. Pastors struggle with that. So there's jealousy in that area. There's ambition there. It's pretty simple. right? Sometimes people just want to grow the church. Because they just want the church to grow. They don't have an eye to mission. They don't have an eye to God's kingdom. They, don't, they might say it, but they don't really want to see people's lives changed. They don't really want to see people come to Christ and, and come to a faith in the saving God. They just, they just want the church to grow. Some people are like that. They want to have more influence. want to have more income. Or they want to have more whatever. Fill in the blank. And this isn't just a problem for big churches that want to grow bigger. It's a problem for little churches as well. Little churches like our own want to grow so that, A, it's easier to keep the doors open. Let's be honest, that's on our list. But if that's the only thing on the list, then that comes from a heart of selfish ambition. And if that's your list, I'm not surprised if God doesn't grow the church. Not at all. I want to grow the church to make it easier on me, right? That's selfish ambition. Now, the opposite side of that coin would be the desire to make the church grow to glorify God. And that's not just a thing you say. It's something you feel in your heart. It comes from your heart. I'm sure everyone would say it. I'm sure no one would disagree with me. But do you believe it is the question. Wanting to grow a church because it brings God glory saves people, changes lives, moves people from death to life. That's the only real reason to ever want a church to grow. The only wise reason, at least. So that's what James is talking about. That kind of wisdom that leads to action James is talking about. So what about pastoral ministry, right? You don't have to look very hard to find examples of pastors who were saying all the right things, doing all the right things, affirming all the right beliefs, preaching all the right things, and who, when the chips were down, ended up disqualifying themselves for ministry for a variety of reasons, right? Sexual infidelity, watering down the gospel, doctrinal inaccuracy, all of these things sometimes come under the heart of pleasing man rather than pleasing God. We saw an example of this late last year. One of the guys that I, I really admired from a, 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 a preaching pastoral ministry perspective, a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll, you may be familiar with it. Okay? Last year, a lot of things started coming out. A lot of pride, a lot of ambition, a lot of consolidating power so that he would be 
untouchable at the top of the church and taking glory away from God. This church had, I think it was 15 different campuses, thousands of people attended this, this church every week. He preached on a video screen, and his ambition and his anger were his downfall. That church does not exist anymore. They dissolved in January, and now all those churches, by God's grace, still exist, but they're all in independent churches with their own leadership and their own preaching. There's, God will bring you down if you have pride and ambition in your heart, but at the same time, he will continue his ministry. So those 15 churches, I think 12 of them are left. I keep track of them on online. I follow them and see how they're doing. So far, three months into their life, they're all doing pretty well. That's only by God's grace. So whenever you get a bunch of pastors in a room together, inevitably someone's going to start talking about what we call the three B's. Have you ever heard of these? Anybody want to venture a guess at what the, the, the three B's of pastoral ministry are? You guys don't count because I'm sure you know them. Anybody know? Buildings. Budgets. And the last one, I'd, I'd be surprised if you had a lot. Butts and seats. Right? Because we have to have an acronym. It's got to be three B's. So you're building your budget and your butt and, your, and how many butts you sit. Like, I'm not kidding. You get a bunch of pastors in a room and they... And, you start to mingle and talk and chat. You're going to talk about those three things. Do you own your building? Where's your building? How big is your building? Uh, what's your budget look like? Is it comfortable? Is it good? Is it healthy? Is it growing? How many butts do you get in the seats on an, on an average Sunday? Those are the questions you get. And in and of themselves, when you're getting to meet someone new in pastoral, those aren't bad questions. They're neutral questions by themselves. But in asking and answering those questions, ambition and jealousy can rise up. Ambition and jealousy can bubble up in your heart. So you end up with people who, who you know, will talk about these things and, and they'll, they'll kind of start to fudge a little bit. You know, like maybe, maybe your average attendance on a Sunday morning is 75 or 80. Maybe you'll say, we're about 100. You start to fudge a little bit to keep up with the next guy. It's the way it is sometimes. You end up with these guys who, because, I mean, all of the, they, they, they get sucked in by jealousy and ambition. And then you, what happens is you stop glorifying God. Because God, as a pastor, God gives you a flock. And you're responsible for those 20, 30, 40, 50, 500 people. There's no need to fluff that number up. There's no need to make up how big or small your church is. You end up not glorifying God that way. And what happens is, guys will end up finding their identity in their ministry and how successful they are from that worldly three B's measuring stick. Right? So people will end up believing that, okay, I'm a bad person because we don't own our building yet, because our budget is unstable, and because we don't have enough butts in our seats. Do you, do, you, do you see the mistake in that? I'm a bad person because of that. No. Your identity is not found in your job. Your identity is not found in your ministry. Your identity is found in Christ. This doesn't just happen in pastoral ministry, right? If you're a business owner, buildings, budgets, and maybe not butts in seats, but customers, right? 
I gotta find a B one for that. Bucks, there you go. That's important. But you're not a, if your business tanks, you're not a horrible person. You may not be a very good business owner. You may not have the, you may not have the skills to make it happen, but you're not a bad person. You don't find your identity in your work. You don't find your identity in what you do. You find your identity in Christ and his completed work on the cross, period. From then on, just be faithful, check your heart. Right? Um, let's skip that because we've already been over that. Uh, another, another one, just, just for, for, for Christians in general, right? Evangelism and discipleship, right? What's wisdom there? Why do you do that? Is there a bad reason to do evangelism and, and the discipleship? Can there be? Well, check your heart. Why are you doing it? Is it out of a sense of duty? Is it out of a sense of, it, of necessity? Or is it something you do because it's, is it something you do because you have to, right? Jesus said, you will go into all nations and preach about me. And t- so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Because Jesus said to do it. So I'm, I'm going to do it. Right? Do you do it because you just want to you, you want to save souls, right? Just so you can put an, another notch in your belt, or is it is it to glorify God? Is it to simply worshipfully respond to God's call on each of our lives as believers? I'll tell you, one of those things comes out of a heart of jealousy and ambition, and one of those things comes out of a heart of glorifying God. I wasn't going to do this. Flip over to Philippians chapter one. You know where I'm going with this because you were in there this morning. So Philippians 1, verse 15. Okay? Because here's here's the reality. There are people out there who preach Christ, who preach repentance for bad reasons. And we have Paul in Philippians tells us all about that. So first, uh, sorry, so Philippians chapter 1. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of, what's the word? Selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay? So here's what happens. People proclaim Christ out of a sense of duty, selfish ambition, anything that isn't worshipful glory of, of, of God. And the, if the outcome of that is changed hearts and saved people, that's great for them. I still want to get at your heart. The one who's doing it out of selfish ambition because you're the one who needs the salvation you preach for bad reasons. That's why I care about your heart. You might lead a dozen people to Christ in your life, but if your heart isn't in the right place, you are in danger of hearing the words come out of Jesus' mouth. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. I never knew you. You were not doing it for me. You were doing it for yourself so you could look good to church people. That's why I care about that guy. Last one. This is more geared towards those of us in the room who are parents, young kids. Where's your heart in your parenting? Now I know, 
those of you with kids who are older, like my age, like your parenting's not over, but it's especially critical when the kids are young. Where's your heart when you're parenting? I'll give you an example. Speaking of selfish ambition in particular, we've all seen those parents, right? The, the, the dad who never played hockey beyond college level. The one who's pushing his kid to be the next Gresky or the next Crosby, right? The parents who are living vicariously through their kids without any care of what the kids might actually want or be good at. I'll be honest. I mean, I'd love to see Chloe play baseball. I'd love to see her be one of the first girls to play in the majors. That would be just highlight of my life on, on, on this earth, right? There's nothing I'd love more to see my son play as well and have, you know, have one of them pitch to the other. That'd be great. Cheering for both teams in one game, that'd be awesome. Here's the key. I'm not going to push either of them in that direction if that's not what they want to do. If the cry of their heart, if they don't have the same love for the game that I do, I'm not going to force them to do that. I'll be, I'll be bummed out, sure. But I've, I, I've still got Blue Jay Radio, so I can listen to the game. If that's not what they want to do, if that's not what their passions are, I'm not going to push them that way. I want them to find something they love. And I want them to do it with all their heart, all their strength, to glorify God. If Eli wants to go into ballet and be the next Sergei Barishnikov, doesn't matter. He'll have my support. He'll have my love as his dad. And I will learn what all those terms mean. Our ambition for what our kids do can get in the way of wise parenting. Kids who love to play hockey but have to play under the embarrassing over-arrogance of their parents who just don't understand that it's a game at six or seven years old will have their love for the sport crushed. I know that because it happened to me. It wasn't my parents, it was my coach. I was 13 or 14, and I love baseball. Probably more than, than, than I do now, and that's impressive. because I, You guys know I love it. And we didn't have a particularly good team. We had a few guys on our team who weren't skilled that year, didn't really know what they were doing had never been coached or taught well. Some of them were new, had never really played before. And we got schooled one of these games. We just got taken to school. I think we lost. Well, there was a mercy rule, so we we lost by 10 runs. So It was like the third inning. So, I mean, we really got taken to school that day. And our coach sat us down and he yelled at us. This is the worst team I've ever coached. You should be ashamed of yourself. I quit. That night, I quit. I hadn't played ball since. After that, I coached for a year or two. I was an umpire for three or four years. I still loved the game. But I could have played. I could have played in high school. I could have maybe played in college. Who knows? Who knows? Our over-arrogance can crush the dreams of our kids if we don't nurture what they love, if we don't nurture what they're passionate about and James here is talking about vile practices coming out of these kinds of heart conditions I can't think of a much viler practice than crushing the hopes and dreams and love of a child especially your own so if Chloe doesn't want to play baseball okay what do you want to do sweetie what do you love what's your passion if Eli doesn't want to play ball what's your love buddy 
What's your passion? What do you want to do? Find it. I'll help you find it. What is it? I want to see you succeed in what you put your heart in. I want to see you succeed in what, what God has wired you to be. And I'll give you every opportunity to do that. James says, watch your heart. Watch your motivation for, for where, watch where your motivation for things are, where it comes from. Is it jealousy? Is it impatience? Or is it to glorify God? I love verse 17 where he, he tells us what wisdom is, right? Verse 17. Let's read it real quick. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You know what he doesn't say? Wisdom is knowledge. That's not what he says. Doesn't once, doesn't once mention knowledge. Wisdom is pure. Wisdom is a pure love for God. Wisdom comes out of a pure heart to follow and worship and love God. Wisdom is peaceable. It's not overbearing. It doesn't insist on having its own way. I think I read that somewhere else. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Wisdom is gentle. It's agreeable. It doesn't roll over and be a doormat. That's not what gentle and agreeable mean, but it's gentle. The Lord loves a gentle and quiet spirit. Wisdom, James says, is open to reason and full of mercy. Um, tell you, I'll tell you a story about, about being open to reason and full of mercy, okay? And its relationship to wisdom. Some of you know, a couple weeks ago, um, I wrote this blog post on the church webpage. Originally intended for you know, us and a small group of churches and pastors that we, we are familiar with and we know. Um, that thing blew up. Okay? Just was intended for a small group. And, and within two days, it ended up being read by like 40,000 people. By now, it's up to, I think, 71,000 people have read this thing that I wrote for... Like, I wrote it for 200 people, and it's been read by 70,000. Um, I had to learn very quickly how to moderate comments on the church, on the church website. And I'll tell you, some of the people that commented on that post, some of those comments weren't posted and won't be posted. Because I didn't allow them on, because they're not kind. They're not open to reason. They're not gentle. They're not full of mercy. Thankfully, only one person swore at me, so it's a small moral victory, I guess. I had to, to learn very quickly the difference between someone who disagrees with me respectfully and someone who's just out to get their shot in. And sometimes it's hard to tell. <laughs> I'm sure I made some mistakes. You want to see, see the difference? I mean, I got one this morning that's gold in my email. If you want to see the difference, I mean, come, come and ask me. I'll show you some of the comments that didn't make it on. I'll, or, or I'll show you some of the comments that, that were sent as anonymous emails to me. One of the things I learned very quickly, well, I, I knew it before, but I, I really experienced it, is that typically, more often than not, people who are not out to disagree respectfully won't use their real names because they're cowards. The internet is wonderful, gives us the opportunity to discuss and share ideas and, 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 and talk and converse and you know, grow to a, a greater understanding of truth. But it also gives us the opportunity for anonymity. And what you'll find is that when people want to have an actual real conversation that exchanges ideas, um, rather than dumping their opinion down your throat, they'll use their real names. But if they just want to sound off and remain anonymous, they, they tend to stay anonymous. It's just the way it is. 
So being open to reason means that when you have a discussion with someone, you're completely open to the possibility that you might be wrong or your opinion might change. Okay? And that's not a failure. Right? Like if you're having a discussion with someone, you lose... An, no, if you're having a discussion, you're having a, a, an exchange of ideas with someone and your opinion changes, you haven't lost the argument. Right? If you, change your, you, don't, you haven't lost the argument if you change your mind. Here's, here's, here's the reality. If you change your mind because someone else is correct and you were incorrect, then praise God. You have become more correct. To be open to reason is important. And, being, and, and, be, and wisdom is being full of mercy is important. And it's wise, conversely, if you're the one who's right and you're having a discussion with someone who is clearly wrong, but just not budging from their position, right? Regardless of what the argument is, you need to be full of mercy, right? You're right, they're wrong, you've got to be full of mercy because here, here's why. Guaranteed you're wrong about something. Maybe not the thing that you're talking about, but you're wrong about something. I'm wrong about some things. We're not, we, we don't, we're not right about, I'm not right about everything. You're not right about everything. So when we are right, we need to have mercy because there are times when we're wrong. And when there's a possibility we're wrong, we need to be open to reason. James says wisdom is this, it's full of good fruits. If you have wisdom that comes from God, then you're full of good fruits. If you have wisdom that comes from God, then you're likely, likely you're a believer. You're believing you're, 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 you're going to have, if you're a believer, you're going to have good work, right? Wisdom is impartial and sincere. It's honest and fair. That's wisdom. That's not to say that every situation that is unfair is unwise, right? Sometimes life isn't fair. And as a Christian who is wise and full of mercy, we adapt to situations that aren't. We glorify God through them, while at the same time striving for fairness and impartiality. It's just the way we do it. Because sin is real, and it exists in this world, and things aren't fair. And so we need to have grace and mercy, as our Lord had grace and mercy when he was on the earth with us. Verse 18. I love how he ends this. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We all want to see the harvest, right? Every one of us. Whether, whether it's from a heart of ambition and selfishness or whether it's from a heart that is wise and worships God, we all want to see the harvest. We want to see the harvest. We, we, we want to see people saved. We want to see the gospel go out. James says that the heart, sorry, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. By those who make peace. What did Jesus say about those who make peace? They're blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. James says they're wise. They will see the harvest. So how do we strive for wisdom? How do we get wisdom? Thankfully, James has already answered that question, right? Chapter 1, verse 5. We, we've been through this. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You want wisdom? Ask for it. God has it all, and he's a generous giver who gives to anyone who asks. 
If I can be so bold, I would, I would add this. Once you have asked God for wisdom and believed in faith that he has it and will continue to give you that wisdom, surround yourself with wise people. Surround yourself with wise counsel. Surround yourself with people who are pure, who are peaceable, who are gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial and sincere. I mean, even if you're not striving after wisdom, doesn't that sound like someone you'd want to spend time with anyway? I want to be friends with that guy. We as humans have the luxury of choosing our friends. You don't want to... You don't want to choose someone, I mean, don't you want to choose someone who's all of those things? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. I mean, I want to get to know that guy. I don't want to get to know the, the guy who's um, argumentative, aggressive, closed-minded, judgmental, um, never has good fruit, and is partial. Oh, and sincere. Um, and a liar, Right? Who wants to be friends with that guy? Not a lot of hands. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. I want to buy that guy a coffee just to hear him talk. Just to hear him talk about his life. Just to listen and have him speak into my life and reveal the areas I have that are inconsistent with that. Because I want to grow in wisdom. God gives wisdom to those who ask. Sometimes he uses wise people to impart that wisdom to us. You've got you to get to know these people. You've got to find them and get to know them. You know who that, who that kind of a, of, of a person is? I've, I've described this before. That's a Paul. That's what that is, right? I've talked about this many times before. You need someone in your life who fills the role of Paul in the New Testament to the church. right? Someone who's further ahead of you. Someone who's wiser than you. Someone who is your spiritual teacher, like Paul was to Timothy. Wisdom, James says, comes from the Lord. It comes from him. He has all of it. And he gives it freely away. Ask him with faith and he will give it to you. Then surround yourself with people who are wise and listen to them. And when they call you out on being wrong, listen to them. I've had this done to me a couple of times, and it's saved my bacon. Don't just surround yourself with the ones you agree with. Surround yourself with people who are wise, people of good godly character, even if they disagree with you. Because those people can make you think. I'm a, I'm a convinced complementarian, right? Some of you know what that means, right? We're a fellowship church, we're complementarian. Uh, the office of pastor and elder is reserved for men. That's just, that's who we are. That's the reason the fellowship exists. If you go back to the 60s when it happened, right? Some of my closest friends are egalitarians on the other side of the fence. They disagree with me, I disagree with them. We deal with each other in grace. They try to convince me and fail. I try to convince them and fail. That's just the way it is. But they're wise. They are wise people who are wrong about one subject, who have godly character. So I surround myself with them. Surrounding yourself with people who agree with you is not going to do you any good. You're just going to stay where you are. You're never going to grow. These are the kinds of people that make you use the reason you have. Right? They will grow you 
Your ministry will grow. Your influence will grow. You'll grow in righteousness. You'll grow in holiness. You'll grow in wisdom. You'll become more like Christ. You might change your mind on a couple of opinions, on a, on a couple of things, and become more correct. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. Shouldn't that be what we all want? So what's holding us back? Let's just do what James tells us to do in chapter 1. Let's just ask for it. Let's pray.